Our text this morning is rather lengthy. We'll be going through and hitting some some main points here in chapters 5 and 6. As we continue our way through the book of 1 Kings. You may recall that the Apostle Peter speaks for many of us when in his second letter he says, There are many things written by our beloved brother Paul, some of which are hard to understand. You may have had opportunity this week to look through chapters 5 and 6, or even perhaps now you're looking at the excerpt that's in the bulletin or just scanning at the titles right now, and you may wish that our beloved brother Peter had written, there are some things in Paul and in the historian of 1 Kings that are difficult to understand. Why especially they take up so much space in our Bible. Well, I would just remind you that if you think this text is difficult, a man who has forsworn doing any sort of home project ever in his life, myself, it presents what appears to be an insurmountable difficulty, trying to figure out what a cubit is and how a staircase is put together and what different types of wood paneling are. It can be a very daunting task. We might wish that perhaps these two chapters had appeared in an appendix of the Bible, that we could conveniently, if we needed to do a diorama of the temple, we could flip back and find it. We might imagine that this section of the Bible is only sought after by folks such as Tim the Toolman. As a matter of fact, it can be so difficult to follow on the back of your outline is a different kind of outline help, and that is a design of the temple. And you may be asking yourself, then, why are we spending time to cover this in 1 Kings, especially if I peek ahead and I see Solomon's unbelievable prayer is coming up. Why don't we move right to there? We can't rush to get by the construction report. Well, it's because these things are included in the scripture for a reason. God didn't accidentally place it here. He gave it a good deal of emphasis for us. You may be surprised to know that this account is almost repeated in the book of Chronicles. So not in just one place, but in two places, our Lord goes on about the design and preparation and then the construction of the temple. Not unlike, he spends many, many chapters in the book of Exodus designing and constructing the tabernacle. Well, why is it? I think it's more than a sanctified building project. And it's not that we are taking... These blueprints, these plans, and marking out cubits for our new building. No. Within this text, our Lord wants to show us himself, his promises, his faithfulness. And so I'd like us to see three things from our text here this morning in 1 Kings 5 and 6. The first thing I would like us to see is the building preparation. The building preparation. Preparation. We'll see that in chapter 5. And then as we move into chapter 6, we will see kingdom permanence. A building is prepared, 
and a kingdom is made permanent. Kingdom permanence. And then we'll see in the midst of chapter 6 what binds this all together, and that is covenantal principles. Building preparation, kingdom permanence, and covenantal principles. Well, let's look then first at the building preparation. Chapter 5 begins pretty mundanely. It's sort of page 8 or page 13 of the newspaper. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father. Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join with your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. And so our text here begins pretty ordinarily. It describes a political situation. It says, there's this king, he's a neighbor of Solomon, and he's been involved with Israel before. It recounts that Hiram had helped David and had been a friend to David, and he wants to be friendly with Solomon. And later on, in verse 12, they come together and they make a treaty. And we might think this is something like a a G4 summit or a NATO meeting. Something that sort of happens, but we don't pay much attention to it until afterwards. It's just describing what's going on in the world now. And this is a good example of why we need to look at these texts, because there's much more going on here than simply speaking a political treaty. Hiram is a neighboring king, and he did help David. And if you recall, in 1 Samuel 5, he helped David to build his palace. Hiram helped to have the cedars of Lebanon cut down so that David could make for himself a magnificent house. And you know what the result of that was, don't you? David stood around, looked at all that had been made, and he said, this is way too much. How can I live in this? And my Lord dwells in a tabernacle. And it was Hiram's help and this incident that began the entire focus of temple building. But more than that, you recall what happened after that in 1 Samuel 7. We looked at it in Sunday school a few months ago. It's a very famous passage in 1 Samuel 7. As David looked around and said, this is way too much for me. I need to build a house for God. Lord, please let me build you a house. And do you remember what God's answer was? No. You want to build me a house? I'll build you a house. An eternal house. Your kingdom shall have no end. I will build you a house, a dynasty, a kingdom. All sparked by a construction project that Hiram, king of Tyre, was involved in. 
And Solomon knows this. Look at verse 3. He says, you know that David, my father, couldn't build the house. You know why. You know the promise that God gave to David that a son would come and that God would give him rest and that this temple would be built. Solomon remembers this. Solomon remembers it in the ordinary everyday life of a conversation about economics with Hiram, king of Tyre. The question comes to you. Is that how you view life? Do you look for God in a project at work? Do you look for God while you're clipping grocery coupons? Do you look for God as you instruct your children? Do you look for God as you work around the house? Because you see, God works in these ordinary situations and in these ordinary ways. He works in them to remind us of his promises. And you see, that's what Solomon does. He begins to rest on this promise. Look at verses 3 and 5. You know David, my father, could not build the house because he had no rest. But now... God has given me rest on every side, he says in verse 4. And so I intend to build this house because the Lord said so. Solomon begins remembering the struggle, remembering the hard times, remembering the adversaries and the misfortunes. You see, Solomon does not pretend that life is perfect. He remembers the struggles to see where God has brought him. You see, we're tempted, I think, to forget about all the difficulties we've been through. To try and drown them out of our minds. Because somehow that will make us less joyful. Somehow that will make us less Christian. Somehow that will make us less trusting in God. But you see what Solomon says is, it's precisely because we have difficulties and we know about them and God has delivered us that we can trust in Him. It's because of the difficulties and the misfortunes. You see, Solomon can look around now and not just see busybodies, he sees peace where there once was none. He sees rest where there was once turmoil. He sees construction where there was once destruction. He's resting on the promise of God. We need to remind ourselves of that. It's a wonderful reason to study church history. To look back and to see through turmoil the way the Lord has preserved His people. You'll be seeing that, some of you, in months to come as Daryl goes through church history. You see, as the great doctrines that we hold to be true, the great doctrines of the faith that we rest in, cost men and women their lives. And we can look back and see that God has kept His promise in preserving the truth of His Word. But you see, Solomon doesn't just rest on this promise. He moves from there into work. He acts on faith. He says, God gave this promise. He said I would build. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build. I'm not only going to think about the promise of God, I'm going to act on it. This is the promise part of preparation. But there's more than just the promise. We also see the preeminence of God here in chapter 5. Hiram says in verse 7, After he rejoiced greatly, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. In the the Hebrew text, it's interesting that chapter 5 doesn't really even exist. 
Chapter 5 is tacked on to chapter 4. And if you look back, you see that chapter 4 is all about Solomon reigning and ruling over all of the nations. It's about Israel relating to the various nations. Egypt, the river Euphrates, and all of these other places. And so we might think that Hiram is really a part of this. He's a part of these nations that comes to Israel and praises God for what he has done. And so in that sense, Hiram isn't just some backwater king speaking platitudes. He foreshadows the day in which all of the nations will come and bow before the Lord God. Just as Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You see, the day is coming when even the pagan of pagan nations, like Tyre, are going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Do you tremble when you read the newspaper? Are you worried about nuclear weapons in North Korea? Or Iran? Or Muslim hordes? Or secular nations? You need to trust the promise. God has given you evidence of the fact that the end of the story has been written. God wins. And we can have faith in that and trust in that, that Hiram is simply the first fruits of what will come. You see, God is driving this project. There's no building committee. There's no man-made task here. God is driving this project because he wants it done. You see, Solomon can relate to Hiram, can get the cedar he needs, can have the trade that he does because of a simple thing. God gave Solomon wisdom. Look down here. It's very interesting in verse 10. You need to make a slight change in translation to get the flow of it. So Hiram supplied Solomon, our text says, which is a perfectly good word. But the word there is also the word for gave. So Hiram gave Solomon timber. Verse 11. Solomon gave Hiram food. Verse 12. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom. You see, all of it flows from God giving Solomon wisdom. God is in charge here, and that is what's driving the here and the now. It's just as true for us, isn't it? If you were to put it in a pithy phrase, you might say, as one commentator does, eschatology drives ministry. Well, what does that mean? That means knowing the end pushes us on to work now. Right? Isn't that what drives you on in evangelism? Knowing that the Lord has those that are His? Isn't that what drives you on for ministry? Knowing that the Lord is redeeming the earth? Isn't that what drives you on in claiming the promises of God for your children? You see, God is driving this temple project just as God is driving the church project. The kingdom promise that is out there that at, every, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, should excite you about Vacation Bible School. Not that we'll have cute flannel graphs. 
Not that Barbara's really well organized. Not that there are a lot of people helping. No. The promise of God drives us as we do that ministry. Just as surely as it drove Solomon. And it drove him, look at the program it drove him to. It's an unbelievable in scope and in cost. The cost of the timber alone is 20,000 cores of wheat, something like 125,000 bushels. 20,000 cores of oil per year. He goes out and has stone cut, and it's precious stone. The cost of the timber, the cost of the stone is, is unbelievable. But you see, God is interested in this building project. He takes a personal interest in it. He doesn't want Solomon to miss him working. And the building program is a grand one. Now, why would God undertake such a program? Some of us might stop and think, couldn't all those bushels of wheat be used for something better? Surely there are hungry mouths to feed. Surely there are people that need assistance. If we say that, we can't help but think, to our Lord, and the expensive perfume, ointment, that was wasted upon him, that could have been given many times over to feed the poor. And our Lord said, the poor you always have with you, but I only now. So it is true here with this building project. God wants something magnificent to declare his glory to the nations that they might come, that they might come to Jerusalem, that they might come to him, that they might be ministered to. And he wants it to be a permanent structure to reflect a permanent kingdom. And so we look here at kingdom permanence. Many of you men can understand this even better than I can. You build something out of solid wood, not just press board or cheapo wood, but the best wood you can find, you expect it to last, don't you? You build something out of big, heavy stones, you expect it to be around for a while. Now, contrast that with the tabernacle, which is a tent made of skins. You see, God wants the very nature of these materials to indicate that a new phase of the kingdom is coming in, a permanent phase. It's solid. It's valuable. There is gold everywhere in here. You notice that? Between verses 20 and 35 of chapter 6, you can count this when you go home, the word gold appears 11 times. There's so much gold that we see in verse 30, there's even a gold floor. Can you imagine that? A gold floor. And you thought that you spent a pretty penny to put wood floors down. No. Gold floor in the temple. It's solid. It's permanent. It's valuable. And the focus here is upon what's going on in the interior. The first ten verses of this chapter describe the exterior. But inside, verses 14... Through 38, the bulk of the chapter describes what's going on, as you see here in the back of this sheet, in the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, do you wonder why 
so much time is given to describe this holy place? I'll give you one reason. The average Israelite would never see it. Only the priests go in there. And in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, once a year. So our historian is giving kind of an audiobook version of what's going on in there. To describe for us and for the Israelites what the inside looks like, how important it is. They don't need to see it. It's described for them in resplendent detail. Not unlike the way we know the treasures of heaven only by the word. Isn't that true? We rely upon God's word. And so we see that these materials that were used are solid and costly. But we also see that God is in the timing. That the temple timing is important. Solomon says or excuse me, our historian says in verse 1, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Do you see God working at a very deliberate pace? Do you get impatient with the promises of God. You want to see your children evidence spiritual growth. You want your marriage to be richer and fuller. You want to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, you are long on patience for maybe a couple of months. And then after that, you get itchy, agitated. Start looking at your watch, wondering where God is. 480 years from the Exodus. That's how long it took for the promise of a place where God's name would be known permanently to be located. I read that and I get downright giddy about the three months we spent getting an easement. 480 years. But I want you to notice something else. It's deliberate, but it's also very specific and certain, isn't it? When we throw around things like 480 years, that's a long time. It's a decade here, a decade there. Pretty soon you're talking about real time. But no, our historian says, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the second month, that's when they started. Very specific to show us that this fulfillment of the prophecy was certain. This isn't just a bunch of years thrown out there. It's not figurative. It's very specific and deliberate. We might think about it this way. Some of you are having uh, the blessing of being involved with Financial Peace Ministry. Financial Peace University. I want you to think about the way that God acts here about the way in which you pay off a large debt. Do you pay off your home mortgage... You just take out a mortgage and decide, well, next week I think I'll pay it off. Now, what do you do? You write a check. And then you write a check. And then the next month, you write a check. And so on, and so on, and so on, right? You can't even tell. You look at the amortization chart. I'll pay off my house in 2038. And your first thought might be, am I still going to be alive then? But what happens if you say, well, it will pay off in 2038. I don't need to make this month's payment. 
Ah, I don't need to make next month's payment. What happens? It never gets paid off, does it? It seems out there, but it requires slow, steady work and planning. That's what building the kingdom of God is like. It doesn't always happen, flash bang. We need to see the Lord working slowly and steadily in our communities, in our families, in our own hearts. It takes time for God to do his work. But you see, also, there's a reason why this incident is taken. 480 years is a time marker, but our historian could have taken other time markers, couldn't he? It was so many years since David began to reign. So many years since Solomon began to reign. But he specifically ties it to the Exodus. Do you wonder why he does that? You see, what our historian is doing is saying... The kingdom of God is about to enter a brand new phase. A new era is about to be unveiled. The history of Israel can be divided up into before Egypt, 430 years in Egypt, 480 years of wandering after Egypt, and the permanent kingdom. It's a new phase. God is going to do new and different things. It's not unlike, beloved, what we are going to do, Lord willing, when we get into a building. Our ministry is not going to change. We're not going to bring in all new people and send you all out. We're not going to start believing different things. We're going to have a new phase of our ministry. It's going to be more permanent. The Israelites don't have to set up tents anymore. You don't have to set up chairs anymore. It's a new and more permanent phase. That's why the author is highlighting this. He says God is giving not just Solomon rest, he's giving Israel rest. The period of wandering is over. He says, I'm done living in a tent. We're here and we're staying here, is what God is saying. God is establishing Israel. This is true for your lives as well. Do you feel restless in your life? Are you constantly thinking about changing jobs because maybe that will give you a little more permanence? Are you thinking about getting a different, more solid kind of house? Perhaps you're thinking about changing the educational system for your kids. Changing where you go to vacation. Looking and longing for permanence. You see, one of the other things this temple construction shows us is that permanence is only found in God. The Israelites hadn't moved for years. They weren't wandering around the desert. They'd been there, by my reckoning, 440 years. But it's when God is permanent. And when they are focused on God and His permanence, that they have rest. I think this is what our Lord is getting at when He says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Do you need rest today? You'll only find it in Jesus. You'll only find it in the true temple. The temple that can never be torn down. 
that can never have its stones tumbled like this temple did and like this successors to this temple did. Only by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether for the first time by faith or if you have walked with him for years by coming to him and saying, Lord, guide me, show me what I should do, ground me in the faith. Only there you'll have rest. And you see, our historian knows this. Because in the midst of this awesome description of this unbelievable building, we can almost sense the weight and the permanence of it just by the length of the description. At a natural transition point, at the end of verse 10 of chapter 6, our author makes this point to us. He says, Kingdom permanence comes from covenantal principles. Look with me at chapter 6 and verse 11. It seems so out of place. It's so out of place that when you read commentators, they come up with all kinds of reason. Oh, this is an insertion by a later Deuteronomic author. This is a scribe's emendation of a further text inserted into the temple narrative for some reason. And we can safely ignore it. That's what modern commentators do with this. But instead, this text just breaks into the middle of this description of the blueprints. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning the house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Do you know what this is? This isn't a later Deuteronomic insertion. Let me, let me put it very technically for you. This is... This is an emergency broadcast announcement. Please pay attention. That's what it is. You pay attention when those things happen. Whoa. Is it a flood? Oh, it's just over by Bay Area. Oh, it's up by Dallas. I don't have to worry about that. This is an insertion to catch your attention. It's like an emergency broadcast. God says, this is so important. He says, I have covenantal principles that I want you to keep in mind. And the first principle is, God wants your heart. God wants your heart. In the midst of all this description of Buildings and money and wheat and gold and stone. He gives an emergency broadcast message. By the way, Solomon, what's really important here is, I want your heart. He says, I'm coming to you right now by my word. Now, I want you to notice something. Oftentimes when the word of God comes in the midst of something like this, a building project or something that's to be a war, something that's to be undertaken, God breaks in when everybody's sleeping on the job, right? That's the point that Pastor Carroll made when he was preaching through the book of Haggai. God had to get their attention because they were asleep on the job, not finishing the temple. But you see here... The word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. You see, Solomon is going full ahead here. 
I mean, the temple building takes a long time, but he builds it faster than he builds his own house. But you see, what's happening here is God is breaking into Solomon because he wants Solomon's heart. He wants him to know what's really important. He doesn't stop to talk to Solomon about the project. Hey, good go in there. Like the gold, shiny. He doesn't say, you know, the, the stone should be higher and squarer. No, he doesn't say anything about the project at all. It's actually one of the reasons why it's so odd. We're looking here at two chapters. We're looking at almost 50 verses, and there's these three little verses inserted in the middle in which God has nothing at all to say about the temple. And everything to say about Solomon and who Solomon is and what covenantal obligations Solomon has. The question then comes to you. You, We live our lives like these temple chapters, don't we? There's a lot of stuff that's got to get done. Meals got to be made. Homes have to be clean. Money has to be earned. Cars have to be washed and gassed. Yards have to be trimmed. School has to be taught. Homework has to be done, right? In the midst of all of your busyness, do you want this for your family? Do you take the break to say, concerning this homework you're doing, kids, if you walk in the Lord's statutes and obey the Lord's rules and keep all the Lord's commandments and walk in them, then He will establish His word with you. Husbands, do you take time to say that to your wives? After you say that was a great meal, you say, concerning these dishes that are about to be cleaned, If you walk in the Lord's statutes and you obey the Lord's commandments and you keep the Lord's rules, the Lord will establish His Word with you. Right? This is important. God wants our hearts. It also shows us that it's God who establishes the work itself. God provided for this establishment of the temple. God is doing what He promised to do in His Word. You know, He's saying, I will establish my Word... He's already established it by keeping his promise. Do you notice that? He is establishing the kingdom. He is establishing Solomon's reign. He is establishing the place for worship. But what he really wants is to establish his word in their hearts. You see, God establishes his kingdom with his people. This is what God does. The final thing, though, that gives us hope, as you read this, you may almost despair some and say, oh, I can't keep all the statutes. I can't obey all the rules. Hey, by the way, Solomon fell down on the job. It's not but a couple of more chapters that Solomon doesn't do it. He flops. God takes the kingdom from him. Israel's no more. They go into captivity. What's the point here? The point here is that God told David that he would establish a house that would be eternal. Didn't he? And he says here, you must keep my commandments. You must keep my statutes. You must keep my rules. And then you will be established. And then I will dwell among you. And if we look at this, and we look at ourselves, and we look at Solomon, let's face it, we're without hope. But the text points us to a son of David that kept the commandments, every one. 
that kept the statutes, every single one, that kept the rules, every single one, perfectly. The text points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we come and we claim this promise. God, you said you would dwell among us forever if we kept your statutes. We didn't, but Jesus did. You must keep your promise and dwell with us. You must establish us. You must never forsake us for Jesus' sake. You see, that's so often what the Old Testament does, is it anticipates for us. It's like the hors d'oeuvre before the meal. When the waiter comes out and says, you'll love the special. Here, try a piece. Establishment. The dwelling place of God is established by the Lord Jesus Christ and His obedience. We know this just as we close from the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 begins this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Same language. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's the end of the story. That's the eschatology that drives our ministry. That's the end that drives the here and the now. It's the promises of God being always yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you embrace that today? It's the only way you're going to get through today. It's the only way you're going to get through tomorrow. Looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the one that fulfills the covenantal principles. He is the one that makes the kingdom permanent. He is the one preparing you right now to be building blocks in His temple. Praise Him for that today. Trust Him for that today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us through your servant Solomon. We thank you, O Lord, that you are indeed our God and that we are your people and that we can trust in you because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.